Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A subsidiary. Of the BBC. maybe 20 years ago in Panama, but ended up in a small plane that ended up in a thunderstorm. We were thrown around all over the place, hit by hail, lightning, desperately trying to find this small runway above 3,000 little islands. And so for 40 minutes, the pilot was pale, desperately trying to find this landing strip. And it left me with a pretty debilitating fear of any turbulence in flight. I found myself one day grabbing this lady next to me that I didn't know, gripping her arm so tightly I made fingernail marks in her arm, just saying, oh, my God, talk to me, talk to me. And I just thought, who are you? I don't recognise you. Like, I am someone who rides a motorcycle and I free dive and I do stuff. Why on earth am I so scared of flying? I have to get over this. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that's taking a trip up above the clouds. I'm Emily Knight. So I just started paragliding to try and understand air. I realised that was a thing I needed to rationalise my way out of a fear of flying. And I hated it for two years. And then one day I saw somebody flying a paramotor. And I was like, oh my God, with that, you would basically end up with an aircraft you can have in the back of your car. You could fly any time you like. And you don't have to fly when the air is turbulent because the motor can take you around. So you can fly in calm air and in the morning light and from above. The world looks beautiful. In this episode, we're spreading our wings and taking to the skies, getting a bird's eye view of everyone else down below. And we're starting with the story of a bird, a large white bird called a Buick Swan and the woman who flew alongside them. Let me introduce you to Sasha Dench. My name is Sasha Dench. I was once a biologist, um, a conservationist, and I'm primarily now known as the human swan. In 2015, Sasha was a conservationist working at the Buick Swan's winter home, a wetland called Slimbridge in Gloucestershire in the west of England. So the Buick Swan is the smallest of the white swans. They are very shy and every single bird has a different pattern of yellow on its bill. Every year, in spring, the swans set off on a truly epic journey, east and north across Europe to the Russian Arctic, where they spend the summer. But every year, fewer and fewer of them make it home again. We'd been losing them very fast over the last 20 years. In fact, we'd lost almost half. One in three of the living birds today has got shot in their tissues. So somewhere along the flyaway, birds are being shot at. And what we didn't know is exactly where or why or what could be done to convince people to stop it. The problem is, their migration is 7,000 kilometres across Arctic tundra. It's not easy to follow a bird on a journey like that. But as it happens, Sasha did have a way. I think I'd been flying a paramotor for four years by that time. A paramotor, in essence, is a paragliding wing above your head, about 10 metres across, connected to you by fine lines, and you sit in a kind of harness with a propeller on your back. And that's it. 
And that was the moment where I went, and it sounds ridiculous, but I wonder if you could fly the entire journey with the Buick Swans and tell the story that way. What is spectacular for me about migratory birds is the incredible journeys they make. I mean, it's very easy to say swans migrate from Arctic Russia to the UK, but then when you actually look at a map and you see the reality of what that means, the birds are flying from the land of the polar bear and nomadic reindeer breeders. They're flying across a couple of thousand kilometres of tundra and then the thick tiger forest, orangey multicoloured bogs and trees. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania along the Baltic Through coast. Poland, there are still some of the vast wetlands. Herds of elk that you could fly over totally stunning. Germany, it's a land of agriculture. Flying behind wind turbines and strong wind. There's a beautiful series of islands just off the coast. And big mud flats. All across Europe and then across the English Channel to the UK. The huge change in landscape and people and culture in there is just amazing and they're doing it with their young in tow. So it's a really dramatic journey and somehow I had to find a way of telling it. My mission was to stop and talk to all the people along the way. The Nenets are the nomadic people that live up on the Russian tundra. They move following big herds of reindeer. For anyone who's thinking that I might be landing like a bit of a foreign superhero, the reality is after a couple of hours of flying in the Arctic, I am cold, shivering, with blue lips, bad helmet hair, probably with dried tears and snot in streaks down my cheeks. They grab a hold of you, drag you inside, offer you a cup of hot cranberry or perhaps a bright red salty metallic reindeer blood pancake if you're really lucky. The conversations with them about swans were really, really interesting. They said, we're perfectly happy to engage about swans, we just need to know more. The tiger forest sort of breathes uh, breathes a fog, so you might start off flying with clear weather and then have fog sort of appearing, and that fog, without much warning, can suddenly surround you and enclose you from the top. So I did have a few occasions where I was forced to decide, you know, do I go into the trees, which probably won't kill me, but it will be messy and it'll probably hurt, or do I go up into the cloud, into the dreaded white room? Flying up into the white room is what we call flying into cloud, which is something that you just don't want to do unless you're flying on your instruments. It's pretty terrifying. You don't really know where it's up, down or anything. You're just in fog, so you might as well be in dark. The first time I flew up into it, I just crossed my fingers and hoped that it would only be 100 feet thick, and then two and a half thousand feet later, I emerged to a world that was completely white, totally terrifying, completely disconnected from the planet. Certainly at moments like that, seeing small flocks of birds in the distance who are forced to do exactly the same thing as you was very reassuring. And kind of at that point, that was my one connection was the planet, was a small flock of birds in the distance that I could follow. Basically, I had to fly using my GPS to a point that looked like I was above an airfield. And so I circled down and circled down. My GPS had gone into battery saving mode, so it kept shutting down every five seconds. So that was really challenging, considering I needed both hands on my brakes to keep spiralling. In this very stressful situation, vague stripes appeared in the white. Didn't really know what they were, but I knew they weren't power lines. I knew they weren't a building, and I just aimed for those. And it was where somebody had dug up part of the runway to, to grow vegetables in. So I might have squashed a few potatoes, but I, I survived. My intention was not to fly directly close to the swans. I didn't want to try and change their behaviour in any way. However, that didn't stop the swans flying near to me. 
over me, under me, beside me. And on one occasion, I had two birds break away from a flock. And as I was just about to pull a sharp left-hand turn to get away from them, they tucked in behind my right wingtip and flew with me like I was the lead bird. And I was just beside myself. It was the most incredible moment ever. I was kind of yelling into my radio, hoping that somebody could hear me. Probably the most magic minutes of my life, my moment of really feeling like the humans won. And then, yeah, across eventually to the English Channel. Basically, I did the shortest crossing from France across to the UK. Flew up to 3,500 feet because if I had an engine failure, I needed enough time to be able to prepare myself for landing in the water. I looked across to the white cliffs of Dover. They looked like a big smile in the distance. The sign of the end and having kind of finally done this thing that everybody said was impossible. Just had a flood of tears a moment in my helmet all to myself of course and then the flight all the way across to the west of England. Two years on from the expedition it's probably too soon to really say what the impact was on the swan numbers. We do know the last count is showing that the numbers might have stabilised so that is really reassuring. We've now got a community up in the north of the Arctic called the Swan Champions and half of those are from the hunting community. I had hunters like put down their guns and say like don't worry we'll look after the swans from now and they don't taste very good anyway. They've started to care about the future of the Buick Swan. What do we find high in the clouds above us? Who's up there? At one point in Earth's history, there was nothing but weather up there. Flying has evolved at least four times on our planet, completely independently. First came the insects, around 320 million years ago. Then the reptiles managed it. The pterosaurs ruled the skies for around 150 million years. Modern birds evolved from a flying dinosaur, Archaeopteryx, around 150 million years ago, and last to get their pilot's wings were the mammals, the bats, who joined the party in the sky around 50 million years ago. We've only managed it in the last 100 years. And in the future, what creatures could be joining us in the sky? It might be swarms of tiny flying robots. You can really use robots for almost everything. So you could imagine a future city where everything happens on its own. You have self-repairing structures, robots making sure that things don't break, collecting samples, making measurements, delivering things and taking videos, photography, even performing research tasks. All kinds of applications could be done by robots. My name is Sophie Armanini. I'm a research associate at the Aerorobotics Lab of Imperial College London, and mostly I work on bio-inspired robots. Bio-inspired means exactly what it says, so inspired by biology. Essentially, we look at nature, we look at animals, we look at solutions in nature, and we try to use these for robots. Nature is the results of millions and billions of years of evolution, so it has had a lot of time to come up with novel, creative, innovative solutions. So looking at nature is really the logical first step. Sophie's work has got a bit of a Dr Frankenstein vibe to it, without any of that reanimating the dead business, of course. She gets to take the best bits from nature, from all over the animal kingdom, and bolt them together into a fabulous new multifunctional little electronic animal. So we developed a bird-inspired robot. We called it the Aquamav, the aquatic micro-aerial vehicle. It can dive into the water 
and by folding back its wings, it minimizes the drag at impact. The Aquamab is very much based on gannets, so gannets fold their wings back and can dive to several meters of depth. One of the main challenges is how do we come back out of the water? It might seem easy, but it's, it's actually very difficult to have enough energy to re-emerge and take flight again. And so one of the solutions we looked at is jetting out of the water, kind of what you find on a rocket. The coming out of water part is vaguely inspired by a squid. Squids use a water jet. They propel themselves out of the water. So we're sort of combining elements from different animals and putting them into one. I mean, I think most of the robots uh, we work on are very cool. Another major project that we worked on was using robots to construct buildings, which is also very cool and it's loosely inspired by uh, nest building behavior in birds. So the idea is that you take elements from the environment and use them to construct something. So a swarm of robots to perform a task together. The idea is that you can build a structure very quickly. So for example, you could build shelters after a disaster, or you could build scaffolding on a normal building site using a swarm of robots working together. A lot of people are scared when we speak of robots. So one of the things we will have to do is to make robots more acceptable. They've been around for a while, but essentially they're still relatively new things, especially autonomous robots. New things are typically scary, and of course, at the moment we have a lot of work on artificial intelligence. That's quite scary to us as humans. We can't help but think of you know, dystopian novels, films, where we have robots taking over and controlling us as humans. I think there's always an element of that when we speak of robots, even though all of this is very, very far away, if realistic at all. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week we're going up, up and away. If you spend any time on social media, you might remember a clip which went viral in November last year. It did the rounds as an inspirational video, showing the bravery and perseverance of a tiny bear cub. Remember it? It opens with a clip of a baby bear kind of sliding down this very, very steep snowy slope. It's a, a baby brown bear, so we call it a grizzly bear. The baby and its mama have just emerged from their winter hibernation, from a den dug into the side of a near vertical slope covered in snow. They pick their way up the face and the mama bear makes it to the top without much trouble. But the baby, remember this is probably its first time ever seeing the outside world, struggles, slips and slides backwards down the slope a little way. A very steep snow slope away from its mother and then slowly 
climbing its way back up only to slip and fall again. This second time he slides even further, but the plucky little guy rallies and struggles his way upwards. It's very high definition glossy video, so it's, it's quite clear to me that it was shot from a drone. As that baby bear climbs back up to its mother, you can see the drone zoom in on mom. You can really see the mother bear staring very intently right into the camera, so right at the drone. He gets tantalizingly close to the top, and then the mama bear does something you wouldn't expect. She swipes at him, knocking him down again, a third time, down and down and down. And the baby kind of takes a tumble and slides hundreds of feet back down that slope, and very nearly off of a kind of promontory of rock, a small cliff. So pretty scary stuff. Yet again, the tiny animal struggles upwards, and this time, he makes it. Him and his mama gallop away into the nearby trees. A dramatic tale with a happy ending, you might think. Not so much. You know, I think everyone has an initial empathic reaction to that baby bear. You know, poor thing, look how persistent it is climbing back up to its mother. But almost immediately, I jumped to, well, why did it fall in the first place? And why did it fall for the second time? So my name is Sophie Gilbert, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Idaho. The camera operator claimed that they were just using a zoom lens, but you look at that mother bear's reaction and the incredible definition on that video, and I and many other people are pretty convinced that this drone itself was swooping towards mom to get that close shot. In which case, think about it from that mother bear's perspective. I mean, it really is an unidentified flying object kind of zooming right at her, and she's got this very young cub, She's just doing what good mother bears do, right? So she's swatting her baby out of harm's way. You know, no, don't come up here, stay down there. That mother bear is just doing the best that she can to keep her cub out of danger. Sophie and a few of her biology buddies launched a counterattack in the form of a thread on Twitter, highlighting some examples of wildlife filming which goes over the line. If you want to check them out, she's at Sophie L. Gilbert on Twitter. All of us are a bit disturbed by how recreational drone users are sometimes not behaving appropriately with wildlife. And most of the time, I don't think it's malicious. I think it's just a, a lack of understanding. And so the cure to that is more outreach and education. One of the ones that really stuck with me was there's a video of some bighorn sheep being approached at extremely close range with a drone in very, very deep snow. The snow is as deep as their bellies. It's incredibly tough going. It's, it takes a lot of energy to get through that deep snow. And this drone chases these sheep through this deep snow in winter. And people may or may not know this, but for a lot of ungulates, things with hooves, they're not able to eat enough to make up for all the energy they're spending in winter. So they have to eat a lot in spring and summer to build up fat reserves so that they can make it through the winter. And anything that kind of pushes them to spend more energy in the winter can really, really strongly affect how well they're going to survive the rest of that winter. They really are living on a knife's edge, and so harassing animals in the winter and making them spend a lot of energy is pretty terrible. Again, I think that most drone operators have good intentions, but it can, you know, it's so exciting to be close to an animal with your drone, and it makes for such beautiful footage that it's very tempting to keep pushing it, to keep getting closer, to follow that animal even if it moves away. You know, if an animal is moving away from your drone, it's asking to be left alone. It's telling you that it's disturbed. And so as tempting as it is to like and respond to these videos because they are beautiful and allow us to get really close to the animals, if there is a visible animal response, that drone operator is not being responsible.
I first got excited about drones as a potential solution to how much of a challenge it is to find and monitor wildlife in big landscapes. Quite a bit of my work is in Alaska. Alaska is a very beautiful and rugged landscape, but it's also very challenging for wildlife biologists because it's so big. An enormous amount of time and effort is needed to find the animals that you want to study in the first place. A ton of money is spent every year in the state of Alaska just flying planes around to do surveys. I and a couple of colleagues did some work with a population of caribou to see if we could count them from a drone mounted with an infrared heat sensing camera. And then second of all, we wanted to see if they were going to respond behaviorally, because even then it was quite clear that you know, some animals were probably going to be bothered by a drone, especially if it's flying close to them. Other really amazing things people are doing include you know, monitoring bird nests, marine mammal haul-outs, so seals and walruses and sea lions, counting whales from the air, even collecting DNA from whales by flying through their blow plumes as they breathe, all, all kinds of stuff. It's, you know, the ingenuity that people are showing as they figure out new applications are, is pretty amazing. I think drones do let us connect with wildlife in some really neat ways if we do it right. You know, obviously the BBC uses them for filming, and those film products are so influential. I was really influenced by David Attenborough as a kid in terms of what I wanted to do when I grew up. So there's a lot of upsides to them, for sure. Of course, it is possible to film wildlife from drones in ways which doesn't bother them. One person who knows all about that is this man. My name's Hector Skevington Possels. I'm currently sat in a snowy Finland speaking to you over the phone. This is wildlife cameraman Hector Skevington Possels, and he uses drones on wildlife shoots more and more these days. But working out how animals are going to respond to the drone can be tricky. Birds. Some species of bird will get out of the way. Some just don't, and some will actually go for the drone. So gulls are a nightmare. They will chase the drone, and we will just try and get out of the way as quickly as possible. Whereas we've flown amongst 100,000 cormorants, and not a single one went anywhere near it. I was flying in big flocks of birds. They were streaming out. I mean, the air's thick. It's black with cormorants. And uh, they were so aware of one another that they were also just aware of the drone, I think. Filming with a drone and is just as amazing. Being able to just fly with them and take that bit of the journey, I think it's just it's a whole new way of filming. Throughout the last three to four years, the technology has really come along. They've become faster, they can fly for longer. We've got better quality cameras. The whole package has improved and what we're able to do with them is extraordinary. So it will be myself and someone else and we'll have a couple of monitors and two controllers and that is almost it. I've got quite a few spare controllers in my house from times when you come home just with the controllers and that's always a sad moment. There was one which was particularly painful, a drone which was custom designed. We spent quite a few months designing it, getting it to the spec we needed for a particular job. It cost a lot of money and got stuck in customs. It then took five days to clear customs. We then got a charter to get it up to where we were. Finally received the drone, got up nice and early for the sunrise, 4 a.m., and then within five minutes, it was in the bank, smashed into about 15 different pieces, surrounded by crocodiles and hippos. And it was a really painful moment to see all that work and all that time, and also the loss of the shoot then, because we couldn't film with it. Uh, so that was a bad end. <laughs> and then 
we had to make a decision on whether it was safe to go and get it or not. Our guide was sure it was fine. And then a hippo came right out of the water from behind us. But there's no going back. She had to just get it and then just sort of wait for the hippos to sort of meander back into the water. The drone was in about 15 pieces. So the drone was just knackered. <laughs> Filming blue whales out in Mexico. The very first day of the first shoot, actually, it was on my birthday as well. It was fun. And it came down to land and cut the engines. And as you cut the motors, there's a little bit of power surge that goes through it. And what that does is it gives it a little bit of lift, which I didn't know about. And it made the drone dance a little bit on the deck. It was going straight over the side. So I decided to grab it. And the motors, they were very low power, just spinning over. And yet they still managed to lacerate three big cuts in the sort of meat of your thumb and then into the hand. Thankfully, just above my wrist giving me seven stitches in my left hand and then flying the next day <laughs> yeah i've got some good scars i've got three on my hands i would have liked some actually bigger scars it would be better for the story but there they are. <laughs> we filmed blue whales and that was really amazing where we we're filming them in mexico the water clarity is incredible it's so flat and so calm you could see the eyes uh, you know of a mother blue whale and a calf and it was just amazing with the drone, you feel like you can suddenly see that whole animal. And I don't know, the analogy I think is like, if someone's in a bath and you can only see the tip of their toe poking out, but actually there's this whole animal underneath there. Rather than just seeing a little back, a little fin and things like that, as soon as you got into the air, when the conditions were just right, you could just see the whole animal. You start to be able to see strategy, behavioral hunting, you get to see all sorts of amazing things. And those times, they were, they were, pretty, they were pretty special because, um, yeah, and you've never seen anything like that quite. When you saw this calf coming up from underneath the mother, and the mum, she moves her, her pectoral fin in and out and lets it go. And I don't know, it was just, yeah, that was pretty special. The sea in the UK is normally pretty murky, but once on holiday, I went swimming in crystal clear water. The fish were bright and the coral was beautiful, but the thing that really captivated me was that it felt like flying. I was hovering, looking down on the floor, maybe 20 feet below me, watching seaweed sway back and forth like treetops in a gentle breeze. Impossibly, I floated weightless above. Is it any wonder we terrestrial animals so often dream of flying? Unlike the bats and the birds and the bees, humans didn't evolve the power of flight. We invented it. We went from dreaming about a world above the clouds to hurtling through it in 300-tonne jet planes in less than 50 years. So perhaps it's no wonder we find it absolutely terrifying at the same time. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight. And for next week's episode, you'll be needing sun cream and a brolly as we bring you stories about wild weather. If you're hungry for more right now, you can sign up to our email newsletter at bbcearth.com slash newsletter. All the latest stories and videos from BBC Earth delivered direct to your inbox. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 